The question I have for us this morning is, why should we as a church care about church planting? Um, I've thought about this question quite a bit over the years. Uh, I'm, I'm a church planter. Um, through God's grace, God moved my wife, Jess, and I here in 2007. Um, we did a first public service in 2009 of Integrity Church. And so I've talked to a lot of planters. I am a church planter at heart. And I've asked these question of why should we care about church planting? And throughout the years, I've heard different answers to that question. Some would say that you should plant churches because they reach more people. And statistically, that is true. Church plants reach more unreached people. If you want to reach unreached people, this is a good strategy. You can plant a church. Um, But is that the main reason why you should plant a church? My answer to that question would be no. It's not the main reason. It's a good reason, but not the main reason. Uh, Some would plant because of a particular model. Uh, they want a more uh, contemporary or modern service, or uh, they want a. They don't want to deal with the traditionalism of a of a regular like established church. Um, so they plant with kind of a newer way to plant a church. Is that the main reason why you should plant? No, that can't be the main reason why we want to plant. Even though it's a, it can be a good reason. Some will plant because of theological reasons. They because they want a Baptist church in an area, or a Pentecostal church, or a Reformed church, or a Charismatic church. But is that the reason why we plant? Because of theological reasons. Well, no, that that can't be it either. Some would say, well, we want to plant a church because we don't want to get too big and we want to expand. We don't want to be the mega church. We want to be a church that sends people out. It's a noble reason to plant, but is again, is that the main reason? No, it's not the main reason. So what is the main purpose for why we as a church would embrace the idea to plant other churches. And this is what we're going to see. We're going to see answer that question in the book of Acts. So this morning, I'm simply going to give us a, some snapshots to the entire book of, the, of Acts so that we can see that there's a theme of churches planting churches. And so we'll start in Acts chapter 1. I'll read the first eight verses, and we'll see sort of this as a backdrop for the rest of the book. Acts chapter 1, verse One, this is what Luke writes. He says, in the first book, and there he's referring to the gospel of Luke. In the first book, I, uh, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's saying, in the first book, in Luke's gospel, I told you that all that Jesus began to do and teach. And he says, on the day he was taken up, and after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles which he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what Luke is capturing here, he's saying, okay, I saw Jesus do all these miracles. I wrote about those miracles and all the things that Jesus did in the gospel of Luke. I wrote about Jesus' perfect sinless life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. And I've, I actually saw Jesus for 40 days t- tell the disciples about the kingdom of God before he ascended to heaven. And that's what Luke is capturing. But then he tells this. He says in verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the what? Holy Spirit. 
not many days from now. So this is the promise. Okay, the disciples hear about the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God will be like. Forty days they heard this, but he says, and it won't happen until the Holy Spirit comes. And then it says this in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times, the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my, what's the word? Witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what does Jesus tell his disciples that would happen when the Holy Spirit comes upon them? The disciples and the 120 believers that were there in the early church, when they received the Holy Spirit, which means they became believers in Jesus, they get all the Holy Spirit they're going to get, they are going to be witnesses of all that Jesus did. That's what they would do. And then we see the event in which that happens in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, meaning the 120 followers of Christ, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, what Jesus said would happen. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So now we see in Acts 2 that all of these people are coming, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are coming into Jerusalem because of the Passover. And now the Holy Spirit falls upon uh, the believers that were there, the 120 people that were there, and then they then speak a real language. And they say all the different languages that are represented from all the different people, from all the different regions that are coming there. Everyone there hears the gospel in their own language. And I love that because here's what, here's what that means. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen. These people would become witnesses. Now everyone hears the gospel in their own language, and they can take the gospel back to their own regions. So we see an immediate spread of the gospel when the Holy Spirit falls upon the early church. What happens next in Acts chapter 2? Well, Peter preaches one of the greatest sermons in the Bible where 3,000 plus people become believers in Jesus. And then they immediately become this contagious community in Jerusalem where many are intrigued and they're drawn into this unique and loving body of believers. And so they're their witnesses in the city of Jerusalem. And then in Acts 3 and Acts 4, we see miracles upon miracles performed by the hands of the apostles so that the masses and the crowds would see that these people are doing exactly what Jesus did in the book of Luke. And then persecution happens because people, the religious elite, didn't like how the gospel was interrupting their religious system. 
And so they begin to threaten the church. They begin to threaten the apostles to stop preaching the name of Jesus. But it does not stop the church. The persecution does not stop believers from becoming real witnesses of all that Jesus did. And I love Acts 4 verse 20. When the um, Sanhedrin was threatening Peter and Paul. And he said, if you continue to preach the name of Jesus, you'll die. Acts 4.20, they say, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Can't help but be witnesses, is what they're saying. And then Peter and John, they then go tell the, the, the early church, the believers, the thousands of believers that have, become, uh, that have become Christians at this time, and they tell them about the persecution. And then we see one of the, one of the greatest prayers of the early church in Acts 4.29 This is what the church prayed. They said, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What did the early church pray? They said, God, give us the strength to continue to be witnesses, to continue to be bold. What did Peter and John say when they were persecuted? They said, They said, we cannot help, we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so then you see the boldness of the believers continue. You have Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6. Many signs and wonders are done to the apostles and to the early church. And finally, this, this community had become so contagious at this point that people were coming in droves with, with incredible needs that needed to be met. And so the elders of the church, Peter and John and the others who originally started the early church, they could not handle the load. And so what did they do? They raise up several men. That could basically clear off tables and take meet needs of the church and who they are. They're the first deacons of the church we have in Acts 6. We had the very first deacon that stands up for the gospel. His name's Stephen. And Stephen, again, he's another man who just can't keep his mouth shut. And so he preaches this sermon, and it takes like a whole chapter and a half where he preaches this sermon in the name of Jesus. And what happens after he preaches He's persecuted. He's killed for the faith. The very first martyr of the early church is Stephen. And we have this unique little snapshot at the end of Acts chapter 7. 7 verse 58, it says, And they cast him out, meaning Stephen, of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. And then we see this young man, Saul, it says in Acts chapter 8, the very beginning, Saul is breathing threats on the church. He's going around from house to house. He's dragging men and women and families out of their own home, the communities that they're building around the gospel. He's dragging them out of their own home, and he's throwing them in prison for the sake of the gospel because these people love Jesus that much. But then we see this next part of Acts chapter 8, that persecution still does not slow the church down. In fact, we see one of the very first churches that's planted out of the church in Jerusalem. Where is it planted? Samaria, of all places. If you were a Jew in this time period, you would have hated a Samaritan. It was incredibly racist, the way that the Jews treated the Samaritans. 
They would never receive anything from a hand of a Samaritan. If you were a Jew traveling and you had to go uh, towards Samaria, you would go around Samaria just to avoid it. And now you have the very first church planted in Samaria from the church of Jerusalem. These Jews are now embracing these Samaritans and calling them brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's this incredible testimony that the gospel, it supersedes racism and ethnic divides like nothing else can. And then that brings us to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 starts, it tells us that Paul or Saul is breathing threats upon the church and he's going from place to place persecuting the church. He still hasn't stopped. But then the text tells us that the Lord stops Paul dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus. And it says this in Acts 9, verse 3 through 5. It says, Now as he, meaning Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. By the way, in the Bible, if you see a light from heaven that's shining around someone, they're about to get beat down. That's what is about to take place. In verse 4, And falling to the ground... He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is what he says to Saul, the persecutor of the church. He says, you're persecuting me. And by the way, we can look at Saul. We can say what a horrible person he is. Look, all of us are like Saul before we meet Jesus. Saul was an enemy of God. All of us start off as enemies of God until Jesus stops us in our tracks. All of us are like Saul until Jesus humbles us and brings us to our knees to acknowledge what Saul saw, saw, um, which is that this is Jesus. This is Lord who I have offended. And that's exactly what happened. So what does Jesus do in Acts 9? He blinds Saul. And he sends Saul to a believer named Ananias to help him regain his sight. And Ananias, he can't believe that the Lord would send Saul in their midst. Why would you send Saul to me? This is the persecutor of the church. This is like sending a member of ISIS in our home. That's what it would be like. You're sending this terrorist to come into my house so I would help him regain his sight? No way. But I I love what the Lord says to Ananias during this conversation about Saul. He says this, verse 15 of Acts 9. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. By the way, that's all of us, if you're a believer. To carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer For the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, I love that. First he was a terrorist, now he's a brother. Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the text says this, I love this verse. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. 
Paul became a believer. And that's just like any of us. We all start off as enemies of God. We all have to see the grace that Jesus offers us through his sacrificial death on the cross. And then when God allows us to see the gospel, something like scales fall from our eyes. We are no longer hardened by our heart. We are now open to the gospel. And after that, Paul's life has changed. He's baptized. And then we see what happens next. In verse 19, the second part, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Is he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Then we're told that Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, and he's going to take the gospel to the nations. And then we see this snapshot in Acts 10. The second, in Acts 10, we see Peter and the church back in Jerusalem continue to spread the gospel. And you see a man named, uh, a Caesarean man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is shocked that Peter, a Jew, would even speak to him. But I love what Peter says as he approaches this foreigner. Acts 10, verse 28. He says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of, or of another nation. That was the Jews' understanding. Not to associate with anyone from another nation. But this is what he says. But God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or, or, or common or unclean. And then we're told that Cornelius and everyone in his household become believers. And then we see back in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 12, we see Paul again. And we're told in Acts chapter 11 that the church is scattered because of the persecution that followed Stephen's death. But the scattering of the church only calls the scattering and the spread of the gospel. And that's there where we see an explosion of the gospel. Then we see Acts chapter 13 through chapter 14. Paul visits on his very first missionary journey 18 different places for the sake of the gospel. Then in Acts chapter 15 through 18, Paul travels to 18 different places again on his second missionary journey where he plants the well-known churches that we know of, if you read the New Testament, Philippi, Corinth, and Ephesus. Then on his third missionary travel, we see this in Acts 18 through 21. Paul travels again on his third missionary journey. This time, he, to, to churches like Galatia are planted. Then we're told of the success of the church of Ephesus that leads to uh, such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and such a work of the Holy Spirit that the whole continent of Asia was shocked and astounded by this church in Ephesus. And that's th from that we see the church of Colossae be planted. And so we just begin to see this explosion after the gospel, and from that, churches are planted. Acts 21 through 28, the rest of the book, is all about how Paul is striving to get to Rome because he knows Rome is the, the centerpiece of the world, and if Rome could be reached, then the world could be reached. And then, then Acts 28 ends with Paul in Rome where it says in verse 30, 
Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. This is a man who positioned his life around the gospel. And he welcomed all who came in, came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness, without hindrance. And we know that from the book of Acts that Paul planted at least 14 different churches, at least. It could be more like 20 plus because some were not recorded. But this is what we see in the book of Acts. Through the early church, through the apostles Peter and John, through the apostle Paul, we see church, the church multiplied because they could not shut up about Jesus. They could not contain it. They could not help but be witnesses of all that they have seen Jesus do. And so all of it is about people responding and wanting to glorify God. And so I asked the question at the beginning of the service, why should we as a church care about church planting? And I listed a whole bunch of reasons why we, what reasons why we could. But here's the main reason. We want to plant churches because it brings glory to God. And that's what you see in Acts. Everyone that says, I want to glorify God. I'm going to live my life as a witness to glorify God. And from there, churches are planted. And I love that because that is what we get to be a part of this morning. We get to just partner with God and what he's doing. He allows us to be a part of his work because God seeks to glorify himself and he uses fools like me and fools like all of us to glorify himself. And so as we commission Restoration Church out, God plants churches. God plants churches. It's God's work because God wants to glorify himself. So we get to just be a part of what God is doing. When I was a high school student, I became a believer at 11 years old and uh, got discipled as a young man. And remember, as a high school student, I would, I would pray for this city. I'd pray for Greenville. And ask God, would you raise up a gospel-centered church plant here in Greenville? And uh, I never saw myself as a church planter. I, I thought I was going to be a youth. I, first of all, I thought I was going to be a, um, a work, be as a D, work as a DJ in a radio station. <laughs> um, why is that funny? Um, and I thought I'd be a, I'll be a youth, I'll be a youth speaker. But then I got tired of like putting marshmallows in my mouth and going to King's Dominion. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I'll be a missionary. Well, I don't know what I'll do. So I began to preach at different places. And um, my wife and I, we pray, prayerfully considered church planting. And during this whole time, I was I still, I wasn't, I didn't see myself here. Um, I would ask people at Southeastern Seminary where I went, would you go and plant in Greenville? Would you go and pastor in Greenville? It's such a, such a city that needs more gospel-centered churches. And as I began to pray, even throughout the years, I would encourage guys to go. And this is one of the lessons that I've learned. Um, be careful what you pray for, because God might actually use you to answer your own prayer. And that's exactly what happened. So in 2007, my wife and I moved here to Greenville and uh, worked part-time in a, with a company that stocked nuts and bolts for Home Depot stores because I'm so outdoorsy and manly and all those things. It just made sense. 
Um, that's a joke. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we, we built a core from 2007 to 2009 <clears throat> until we officially launched the service in 2009. And we were sent out by a church in Atlanta, Georgia, before we moved here. But it was actually a pretty unhealthy church. A lot of um, moral failures happened after we left, and um, we learned a lot of what not to do. That is not why we named the church Integrity, by the way. It wasn't like a reaction to that church. <clears throat> but um, we had to find a core team. And I, I'm amazed as I sit here in this room and I look at all of you and I look at even a team that's wanting to plant their life around the gospel of how it all happened. Because if you would have come in the early days, unless the Holy Spirit or God audibly spoke to you, the likelihood of you coming back was not very high. And we met in a college building on ECU's campus. It's not even there anymore. And it was stinky, dingy, like couches everywhere. And it smelled like a nasty, sweaty college male. <laughs> and then we moved to Walcott's Elementary, which roaches tend to love. And the AC never worked in the dead of summer, and it was 150 degrees. I'm not even joking. You can go watch the last sermon. It's on our Vimeo account where Jake preached the last sermon there, and he is covered in sweat. Never seen anything like it. And it doesn't make sense. Why would people come to that? Why would people do that? Well, it's God. God plants churches. God wants to glorify himself. And he doesn't need us. But he says, I'll use you to glorify myself. And you, get the, you have the privilege of being a part of this wonderful, wonderful work. And so I stand before you today and just say, man, this is God that planted Integrity Church. And the people that God is working in their lives that are going and moving to the really hard city of Wilmington, right? <laughs> Near the beach, suffering for Jesus. Um, um, that's why the Lord made me with like white, white skin because I can't go to the beach. Um, but God is doing that in their life. Uh, the giftedness that we've seen displayed in Chris Wilson as he's come up and preached where I was afraid that y'all would want to hire him over me when I was on vacation because he did such a great job. God did that in his life. God is unifying that team bringing them together. God is working on people's lives right now in Wilmington, softening their hearts so they'd hear the gospel that there'll be people that will get saved in Wilmington. There'll be people that are in a church, maybe not even gospel-centered. They know they need something different, and so they, they're going to transition out, and they're going to be a part of Restoration Church. God is doing all of that now, and so we, we just get to, to just join into what God's doing. He just invites us in and says, you can be a part of it. And it's kind of like what we see in Acts. We look at Acts and we go, gosh, these people were like fishermen and carpenters and uneducated, uncommon people that God just used to do incredible things. It's because God plants churches. And so this morning, we are honored to partner together with Restoration Church as we send them out. And we just give all the glory to God. And we'll hear from Chris and his team in just a moment. I'm going to pray in just a minute, but here's the questions I just want to ask you. First of all, I just want to say, all of us are called to be witnesses. All of us are called to position our lives around the gospel. Maybe you won't go to Wilmington. 
But you are called right now to plant the gospel here in Greenville. Wherever your vocation takes you, you know that you're supposed to do that for the sake of the gospel. Wherever you live, you know that you're supposed to live in a particular neighborhood or particular place for the sake of the gospel so that Jesus would be glorified. So my question is, how are you positioning your life around the gospel? How are you using your career, your gifts, your talents to glorify God and to further the gospel? How are you doing that in your life? How are you being a witness for Christ right now? So my hope, our mission of Integrity Church, is that we would be a church that matures and multiplies. And we want to continue to multiply for the sake of the gospel. And so my hope is that God would begin to stir in some of you a heart for overseas missions, to plant gospel-centered churches, to join church planting teams. And we want to be a church that supports and loves you well as each of us make a decision wherever we are to position our lives around the gospel. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, We marvel at your work. It's all about you. It's not about us. I just pray this morning that you would bring us to a point of gratitude so much that we we would echo the words of the apostles that we cannot help but proclaim what we have seen and heard. Would you give us the heart of the early church that even in the face of persecution, even in the face of difficulty, that we would ask you to give us more boldness to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, would you help us this morning right now, even with college students in the room and young young professionals in the room, that they would evaluate their heart and ask them, am I choosing this career for the sake of the gospel? Am I choosing this spouse for the sake of the gospel? Am I choosing this place that I want to live for the sake of the gospel? How can I leverage where the talents and the gifts that you've given me for the sake of the gospel? Would you work in young families and empty nesters in this room and help them ask themselves the question, how am I being missional in where I live and my neighborhood or the places where I go, the grocery store that I shop in, everywhere that you're sending me, God? Would you help me be a light. Lord, that's my prayer for everyone in this room. Help me be a witness for your glory. Help me to make decisions to be intentional about being a witness. Would that be our prayer today? And Lord, for those in this room who are like Saul, that they need their eyes open to the gospel because they're stuck in their sin, would you open their eyes to the gospel? Would you remove the scales from their eyes so they would see Christ, and they'd see their need to repent and believe and trust only in you. Would you do that this morning? And Lord, we just give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.